I was at a ML startup and I used TensorFlow for that startup for the internship and I I was like blown away. I was like, wow, I didn't realize you could do so many things with it. Um, so I went to like a couple of my professors and was like, can you teach a course on that? And my professor was like, I don't have time. Like, why don't you teach it? So, so I was like, okay. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Chip is a machine learning expert that currently works at a startup focusing on machine learning production pipelines. Prior to that, she worked at NVIDIA, Netflix, and Primer. She also taught the course at Stanford on TensorFlow for deep learning research. And maybe most fascinatingly, before she became a machine learning expert, she was a best-selling author in Vietnam. I'm super excited to talk to her. My first question for you when I was thinking about uh, interviewing you was actually, I, I really want to hear the whole story about how you got into um, machine learning. Like I've, I kind of have bits and pieces of your background that you've, uh-huh. you've told me in the past, but like, tell me your life story. Okay. <laughs> I don't usually ask that, but I want, I really want okay. to hear it. How much time do we have? Like, do you want a full version? <laughs> I like... cut you down, but like, <laughs> but how did you get into um, so... tech in the first place, I guess? So um, it's, it's, it's a funny story because um, I come from a very non-tech background, like as fuzzy as you can think of. Um, so after high school, I, I, I didn't go to college and I started traveling, you know, like I took full picture, you think of hippie, like that was me. Um, um, so I did that for, for three years and in the process I was writing. Um, I was writing for newspaper, I hosted, uh, I hosted a couple of columns. And I wrote uh, a couple books, um, which got me into more troubles than than I wanted uh, that I wished for. Wait, and, really? Um, it got you into yeah. trouble. Yeah. Why? So you know, like internet popularity has like a double-edged sword. So mm-hmm. my books got very popular, and okay, so it's very popular sounds arrogant. It's like more That's popular. Fu- no, than they I, were than, they were bestsellers, I... right? I think it's fair to, to say that they were very popular. What, what were the books in, about? In, in Vietnam, in the, <laughs> so it's about traveling, like the people I met on the road. And um, I was young; I didn't know how to handle all the attention. And uh, people were like, "Oh, it's like it's impossible that like, a girl can't possibly travel by herself." And they were like, "Oh, she didn't write the book. Uh, she didn't write any of that." Like. She had people like some, like running things for her, doing things for her, like people accused her of having a lot of money so she wouldn't travel at all. So there was a lot of controversies and I was uh, a little bit like offended. It was like, who are these people? Why is it like making me answer on like all these stupid questions? Mm. Um, but at that time, I did not know how to handle that. And it caused a lot of like a backlash. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm so tired of this. I'm going back to school. So I went back to Stanford. Um, and I was thinking of doing something like writing, like drip writing or or, um, or uh, like political science. But then, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was at Stanford and, and the, everyone told me that the question is not whether you should take a CS course or when you, when you're going to do it, because like 90% of like Stanford undergrad take the CS course at some point. So I just took a course in my first quarter and I realized it. In your and, first quarter uh, there? Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, it's an introductory course. Hmm? You came to Stanford. How how old were you? You had already been a best-selling author? Don't ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was, like, older than my classmates. Um, Uh And so I took my first quarter. It was was fun. Um, And I kept on doing more courses. And Mm -hmm. before I knew it, it was a CS major. And uh, I... uh, I, I took an AI course. Uh, I cried a lot in the first class. It was so <laughs> difficult. 
but it was so very flashy. I think I can just stand for as a time like it was a peak of the AI hype. Um, uh-huh. Am I allowed to say AI hype here, or sure, it's yeah. like too touchy? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can say literally whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so so I did that, and it was fun, and yeah. Here I am, and I think in my third year, I taught a course. I created and taught a course. Your third year is um, an undergrad. Yeah. Wow, I try to think about what I was doing as an undergrad, <laughs> and I feel I feel embarrassed. <laughs> okay, to be fair, I was like older than people, right? Uh, I also had um, I also didn't have to spend time on like frat parties, like impress people. I was pretty <laughs> much done with the party scene by then. Right. And so, so you, but you taught a, a really popular class, right? Um, I think it's, you could say it's, it was a popular class. I could say. <laughs> I think people can say that. I feel like, I feel like it's, it's, it, it was, um, it was unexpected. Like, I didn't even know that the course was popular. I was just like ditching it. And one day I walked into a dining hall and a friend was like, did you see my comment about you on Hike the News? And I was like, why would anyone say anything about me on Hike the News? Uh, and it turned out that my course on front page of like Hacker News. And I was like, wow, it's interesting. And at some point, it, um, yeah, I didn't even know what happened. I, I was not like really active on Twitter back then. And it's just one day, just open Twitter if I have 10,000 followers. And I'm like, wow, who are these people? It was great. Well, it's a timely class. Like, what, what was the topic mm-hmm. of the class? Just for people who might not know. Oh, it was TensorFlow. I think it, I think it was uh, at the right time. Like, TensorFlow was uh, very popular back in uh, 2016. Um, Wow, it's crazy how fast things change. Like back then, twenty sixteen, like this was what all what people talk about, and now like it's all what people complain about. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, um, so I taught a course on uh, TensorFlow. I think the official name is uh, TensorFlow for Deep Learning Research, which is also a very flashy name. Um, and uh, so I, I think I put a lot like all the materials online. And I think it was maybe the first college level course on TensorFlow. Uh huh. And, and twenty sixteen, like I'm trying to remember it. Like you, I think you you had to compile it yourself, right, to get it to use the the GPU back then. I'm trying to remember. I, I remember just installing TensorFlow was a pretty painful experience for me. Um, it was not. I, I don't remember it to be so painful. It was just uh some some concept was a little bit hard to, to mm. grasp as in like a computation graph. Um, mm-hmm. So it has to like build a graph first before you can run it. Um, so I think with TensorFlow 2.0 right now is a bit different. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Got it. And so I mean, how did you come up with the the material for that class? Like, how did you even think of like what to? So when I started teaching the course, I was um, just hoping to learn. Um, so as you know, I was like, so I started uh, thinking about the course as in like, like uh, sophomore summer like second year um so i didn't know a lot uh i was at um as a ml startup and i used tensorflow for that startup for the internship and i and i i was like blown away i was like wow i didn't realize you could do so many things with it um so i went to like a couple of my professors and was like can you teach a course on that and my professor was like i don't have time like why don't you teach it so mm-hmm. so i was like, okay uh and i got uh, a lot of people to help me so I have some friends at Google uh, who know a lot about TensorFlow. Um, I have professors who like overlook, like take a look, like who who who, who look at my curriculum and uh, and um, and I also skip a lot of feedback. I read lecture notes. Um, I was really nervous, so I had um, <laughs> so I had really good friends who 
was coerced into being my fake student. So if I every like lecture, I would um, I would make them sit and uh, and listen to me, <laughs> give them like a fake lecture. Really? Uh, it, it was it, yeah, um, uh -huh. yeah. So I think I got a lot of help. Um, so it was like learning together with my students. I I didn't think of it as teaching as much as uh, like group study. That's super cool. Did did you mm -hmm. um when you uh came to Stanford, you hadn't taken any computer science class before. So I came from a math background. So I did math in in in, in high school. Uh -huh. So I think um I I think like we we also took some CS courses, but you know like oh, yeah. it's like more like very very basic. I don't remember. It was like blue screen back then. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. It just seems we really are... amazing. Like you know, yeah. you went from introductory to computer science type stuff to teaching a computer science, you know, teaching a TensorFlow class like two years later is like amazing. Do, do you have any thought, like any advice to other people that, that want to learn this stuff? Um, I, I think it's, it's one of the beauty of computer science is just the entry barrier is really low. So also ML uh, and also especially with the experiment uh, oriented um, progress that you actually like don't need to know a lot of theories to make mm -hmm. a contribution. Um, so I've seen people like, who get into ML for like a year and is able to make a like, pretty great project, which I mean, I'm still like ambivalent about it. Like it's, it's good as it's like lowers the entry barrier, which means like allows more people from different backgrounds to join. But so like, what does it say about field when like somebody who like join for a year like can make a pretty mind blowing um, experiment? So, so I don't know. I, I, don't, oh, I don't know. I mean, I know maybe it means there's lots much. of interesting stuff to try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I don't know any advice. I'm not so skeptical of giving advice. Um, I think it's just like get your hands dirty, like try things, try things out, and uh, befriend smart people. <laughs> befriend smart people. <laughs> I have friends smarter than you. I think I don't think I can have got anything done without my friends really yeah oh, that's so cool um yeah. i think that's good advice why did you choose to go into ai uh, for me it was just a promise that ai uh let's say i held uh so i come from a village in vietnam and i traveled and over the time i realized that um language barriers can actually like, it could be great if you can like, overcome the, the language barrier, for example, like the majority of uh, human knowledge on, online actually written in English and people who don't speak English like can't really access that. Like people in my hometown like can't really read anything that I write in English or, or my parents um, are afraid of like visiting me in the U.S. because they wouldn't be sure how to navigate the airport or uh, how to get here. So, so I think so at this time I was very interested in machine translation. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm thinking, um, yeah, um, like if you can automate, uh, like an automate the translation on uh, process, then it could be really, really helpful. Then if we can uh, overcome the language barriers and uh, help people from maybe my village can access um, human knowledge or just to step out of the of the border. That's so cool. <laughs> That's what I thought back then. Very idealistic. Yeah. What are the topics that are most interesting to you right now in machine learning? Um, so I, I think um, over time, I think what we are liking is better engineering in machine learning. So people are 
So, so there are two two aspects, both as in engineering in in research and engineering in production. Mm-hmm. So, in in research, there are a lot of uh, researchers who who are amazing at what they do, but who also like are not great engineers. And it's it's not because like of them. It's just because human like our time is limited. If you focus too much on on research, you can't you can we can't expect them to be like great engineers. So I wonder if there's a better, is is we can build a good um, tool tool set to help researchers carry out the research um, more efficiently and have like more, and also if like if you have clean code, uh, it's it's easier to control experiments and like help with rep- reproducibility, and and in productions, I also think that um there are people also the gap between uh, researchers and production engineers. Uh, I think there's a lot of there have been a lot of progresses in in research in machine learning, and now it's just a question like how do we bring the research into productions, and that's what I'm very interested in. And also startups that I'm part of right now is also focusing on that by helping companies productionize machine learning research. Cool. Hi, we'd love to take a moment to tell you guys about weights and biases. Weights and biases is a tool that helps you track and visualize every detail of your machine learning models. We help you debug your machine learning models in real time, collaborate easily, and advance the state of the art in machine learning. You can integrate weights and biases into your models with just a few lines of code. With hyperparameter sweeps, you can find the best set of hyperparameters for your models automatically. You can also track and compare how many GPU resources your models are using. With one line of code, you can visualize model predictions in form of images, videos, audio, plotly charts, molecular data, segmentation maps, and 3D point clouds. You can save everything you need to reproduce your models days, weeks, or even months after training. Finally, with reports, you can make your models come alive. Reports are like blog posts in which your readers can interact with your model metrics and predictions. Reports serve as a centralized repository of metrics, predictions, hyperparameter stride, and accompanying notes. All of this together gives you a bird's eye view of your machine learning workflow. You can use reports to share your model insights, keep your team on the same page, and collaborate effectively remotely. I'll leave a link in the show notes below to help you get started. And now, let's get back to the episode. And, and you've worked at some some big companies too. I guess, like generally, like what kinds of problems do you see when companies try to take research and and productionize it? Like, what are the main ways that you see companies fail at this? I think one one of the big thing is um, a lot of companies are chasing buzzword. For example, chasing when buzzwords. Yes. So everyone's like, yeah, how can we use BERT? How can we transform it? And and you can look at them and say like, um, you actually don't need that. You don't even need deep, lo- deep learning. Like a lot of the problems can be solved by traditional classical algorithms. Um, so 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 sometimes at companies like, um, yeah, this is one should do use very fancy techniques. Um, it the reason can be because they don't really understand what what is happening because I think there are a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding in in AI reporting. Um, you know, like if you see like a lot of journalists or reporters talking about AI, and if they don't have background in 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 AI, then they might just like 
uh, simplify or just doesn't excessively like reflect what what exactly is going on. And the second is some companies might just cause you buzzword to attract clients. You know, like you say, like, oh, we we are using state of the art techniques. Um, then yeah, so 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 some people, some companies actually like go out of their way to like to to try to use that. So that's one problem. I think the second is is that um, so this is a problem with the lack of data. And I think Lucas, I think he pretty knows that very well because uh, you you work with uh, you also try to solve the problem, right? Um, so in research, you we people work with very clean uh, static data set, and you, and you you need the data set to be clean and static because you want to focus on developing models. But mm-hmm. in productions, uh, you already have to usually have like um, I think X models are being more and more uh, commoditized as you know you can take off the shelf model. So the bottleneck now is data and um, and real world data is nowhere close to like um, that like research data. So the problem is like collect data and uh, verify data and uh, how to cope with a uh, constantly distribution um, shifting uh, data drift. So mm-hmm. there's a problem with data. And so another problem is with um, uh, inter- inter- interpretability. Uh-huh. So in, in research, like sometimes you don't really, you care more about like uh, state of the art, little board, um, but but also in real world, like you sometimes you like if we've been like um, you just don't care about the the accuracy or or F one or whatever metric you you pursuing, but also care about like how how can we explain the decisions that a model yeah. is making? Yeah, but I think like a lot of them like uh, people are. Um, I think a lot of top people are like focusing a lot of time on. Um, so I think we are making progress. It's funny, I saw a tweet recently, um, I, I think it was someone at OpenAI who was arguing that mm-hmm. um, that folks should not teach anything besides uh, neural nets Oh my anymore. god, it's such a clickbait. And it, it, it's funny because it reminded me of when I was in, um, when I got my first job out of school, um, mm-hmm. there was sort of a similar debate, but it was like different topics. So like, it was basically like machine learning versus rule-based systems. And there were yeah. a lot of kind of older researchers who had kind of bet their careers on like logic and rule-based systems. And, and they would say, Oh, like, you know, it's like, obviously like you should do both. And I was like, ah, come on, these rule-based systems don't really work on anything. And like, yeah. can you find me like a benchmark where it actually makes sense to, to do a rule-based system? And it, I, I was thinking I, that's how I felt at the time. And I think I might still, I mean, you don't see a lot of rule-based systems in uh, production in the last you know decade or two. Um, or I don't come across them, I guess. Um, and then I was thinking, you know, when, the, when that person made that clickbaity tweet, I was like, no, no, that's ridiculous. But I was I was wondering, am I now like the old guy who's like trying to just, you know, justify no. the things that I know about? No. Did you did you uh, did you get bitted? Do you participate in the discussion? No, I'm like always afraid of controversial <laughs> topics on Twitter. I, I just say it's never. It's not even controversial. It's just it's just wrong. I mean, like I don't get it. I mean, it's, I mean, if it's not from some open AI, I would. I would think that that person was trolling. I don't know, but I don't know. Maybe he's trolling. I, I, I'm not. I'm not even sure anymore. But it's funny because I think your work is mostly in, unlike my my work, which is you know, my, you know, if you look at my own research, it's not in neural nets at all. Uh, I mean, you actually work in, in neural nets. So I guess what are the non deep learning algorithms that that you think are useful that you would keep around, and and why would you why would you use a different one? Um, I mean, like, you know, like, HGBoost is still, like, the most popular algorithm for Kaggle, like, competitions. 
So a lot of them are still very good, like the nearest neighbors are so very good for anomaly detection, you know. Um, so a lot of like really great algorithms. Like a lot of people now they don't even know what boosting or like backing is. Um, so which is a bit sad. Um, so yeah, so a lot of things. Uh, um, I think since it's the other day my friend was telling me about like, how I was interviewing somebody and that person could explain it perfectly well what the transformer, uh, what what a transform model is, but can't explain what a decision tree is. And it was just me. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm old too. I mean, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> what are the situations where like you would recommend using like a boosted tree versus like a a neural network approach? I think definitely for baseline, for example, right? Um, if if a simple model does a job uh, reasonably well, there's uh, I mean, there's always values in trying, but if in production, uh, the simpler the model is, actually, it's, it's easier to to understand and to implement and to avoid mistake. Um, I see. So, so like, if you don't get improvement from like deep, like more complicated methods, don't don't go there. Um, I mean, like, it's also hard to tell because. Um, a lot of improvements incremental, right? So you can say that oh, this only give like um one percent improvement. It's not worth it. But in like for that one percent improvement, if more time investing, you can like get like another and another and another. And over time, you can get up to ten percent improvement. But then if you like just like stifle it from the beginning, then you will never be able to reach the point where it should be. So I'm just saying it's like um is. I'm not I'm, I'm not pro like not using deep learning. I'm actually very pro deep learning. I'm just saying that to start we should we should not forget like simpler baselines. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about baselines or implementing baselines. Interesting. A lot of people have said that. I, I happen to agree mm -hmm. with it. But um, <laughs> if someone is going to ask you um, why are why are baselines important, how how would you answer that? Because like a metric by itself doesn't mean anything. Right, you say ninety percent accuracy doesn't mean anything. So we say, oh, my model is like is amazing. You can act like uh, it has like this accuracy. But then, like, what, what does it even mean? And um, for example, like somebody showed me this uh, model is like like ninety percent accuracy, and I say like, wow, if it's just like predict at random, if it's like, and so like nine like eighty nine percent accuracy already. So what's the hope? What is the point of like getting this? Um, so so baselines or. Uh, I think the baselines are landmarks to help you localize like, where the model performance is and where you want to get you. Uh, so I'm very interested in human baseline, for example, like what, 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 like if human do on this data set, like how well it could, it could do. So it's mm -hmm. like um, maybe say ninety percent is also like really amazing. If the human baseline is like eighty five percent, so we say oh, it's like superhuman performance. Mm -hmm. um, but even if so, a human base like ninety nine percent, then we know that we still have a lot of we have a lot to go. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. So it's like the human baseline is kind of like maybe in some sense like a best case scenario. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's in some cases in a lot of cases the humans uh, baseline is Oracle, but it's not always. Um, yeah. Right. Do you want to talk another thing I'm kind of curious about is um, <laughs> is your your work on I mean just cuz I think like um you know fake news is probably going to be a big topic again with the election coming up. Uh, I think it was just a fun uh class project. Uh so it was after the election and we're curious to see. So so you know like I think echo chamber can also help uh like echoing like fake news, right? I feel like 
um, the same fake news usually circulating the, in the same echo chamber. Um, and, um, and, you know, like, if, if one echo chamber shares uh, a certain piece of news, and another echo chamber shares similar news, but with different perspectives, there might be some, I'm not sure how helpful it's going to be, but it's, it might be interesting to like cross share, like brings uh, the piece of news from, from one perspective to another echo chamber. Not fake news, of course, there's no point in like, spreading fake news from one echo chamber to another. Uh, so so what we did was that um, we we got a lot of tweets and from hashtag. Um, so so at that time was after the election. So we, we collected a lot of tweets from from during the elections in, in one certain state. And what we did was we have some seat hashtags that we know was like whether it's um, a pro-Republicans or pro-Democratic. So from those seat hash, hashtags, we have we made assumptions that uh, if one if two hashtags belong in the same tweet, then they are likely have the same sentiment, right? Like, um, uh, um, for yeah, so so like if, if one hashtag appears next to a hashtag that pro Republicans, then it's likely to be so be pro Republican. So so from that we uh, we had an algorithm just like um, just to resolve conflicts. Um, it's very simple, like majority voting. So, and so we, we were able to, um, able to like, um, label about like, um, a thousand hashtags. Mm -hmm. And so from this hashtags, so we, we also make sure sure I understand. So you, you label the hashtags as like liberal or conservative essentially. Yes. Based yes. on what they co-occurred with. Yes. Yes. So after that, uh, so, so we look on the tweets, so we build a graph of, uh, of relationship between users, for example, if, if user A uh, replied to or like retweet um, another user, there's a link between them. So we build graphs of users, and we also look at the kind of the hashtags they use, and so we try to predict whether a person is a liberal or conservative, and mm -hmm. and then we look at and and then we use some graph algorithms to detect communities, and mm -hmm. then we look at the communities uh, and see like whether this company is a uh, have much more conservatives than liberal and it was very really uh -huh. fascinating because when we found as at like uh about 50 percent of the communities we found are like neutral there's like okay. like there's a difference between um um uh, between the number of conservative or liberals uh it's not it's not that high but then about 25% of them are like conservative. For example, like the number of uh, conservative uh, members are like more than three times higher than like Democrat. And this is 25% Democrat, um, uh, yeah, community. So you found the echo chambers. So we found this like, I'm not sure if it's echo chamber, but um, but it's almost definitely like people who share similar beliefs are definitely have stronger ties than people with like, with, with with different beliefs, I see. Yeah. So then, were you suggesting to sort of like spread information between these communities, or? So we never had access to that because it would require uh, live. Um, yeah, we would require having access to certain social network. Uh, but we would idea. So so we also ran into some um, um, uh, literature, and they say that's like actually like if you show somebody. The opposite, like uh, a news article with the opposite point of view, is not actually they actually not gonna, if if is they actually going to ignore it. So if mm -hmm. you believe in A and it shows you the opposite of A, it was like oh that's fake news, right? 
So, so the keys are, you can't you have to like slowly show them it's like a similar but like slightly different. Like you can't you can't give people a totally opposite viewpoint and expect people to to listen to it. I see that makes sense. So 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 also uh, so we never had a chance to like test out the algorithm, but we hope that like uh but we thought that like detecting echo chambers might be the first step in finding a way to break them. Uh huh. I see. Yeah. 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 Although maybe people just want to live in their echo yeah. chamber. I don't know. <laughs> I think Silicon Valley is a massive echo chamber, really. For sure. I think we all For live sure. in the bubble. And I feel like somehow like this uh pandemic also makes me realize like just show like the, how different our bubble is, like how strong it is. Okay, another another just question I wanted to ask you about. So you've you've um uh-huh. you've recently gone from a um like a bigger company to a, a startup yeah. um, which is a little bit of a shift has there been any um surprises there has that been like i guess like how does that how does that feel to to go from like big company to startup is it a big like cultural shift or it, it's a bubble? big different um it is it's such a big different uh, i think um and, and that's what i wanted right i, I thought mm-hmm. that um after after graduation, I would like to try with different working environment to see which one I would like. So leaving NVIDIA was not a reflection on NVIDIA, it was just like a reflection on myself because I, I just wanted to change. Um, totally. Yeah, and my coworkers at NVIDIA have been extremely helpful. And um, yeah, they are really, really kind and they're great. Um, so um, it's, 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 it was a bit shock. To, to join a startup, I think it's definitely the first is uh, is a workload. It's so much more. It is you know, so much you know more. How... Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing. Um, so, so, you know, at, at a big company, you might see people like leaving home at like, leaving work at like, I don't know, five, six. And, you know, at startups, you, you might have people like, you might, you might got like PR requests at like midnight on Saturday, right? Um, which, um, which is not a bad thing. I, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, I'm still very ambivalent about uh, on the work-life balance discussions, you know. Some people say like, oh, you, you shouldn't like work on, on the weekend or like, no company should expect the employees to to work on, on a Saturday evening. But the point is like companies might not expect you. Uh, but it's like whether you, what, what you expect out of yourself. And I don't want, I don't want you um, I, I don't want to promote uh, the culture of like you have to work hard, but I do believe that when you're early in your career, there are certain compromises you might have to make, uh, which depends on like what you want out of life. Mm. Anyways, that's a very uh, roundabout way of saying that I work on weekend. <laughs> it sounds like you're kind of enjoying that experience. Um. I also don't have much alive, you know. So, <laughs> um, I guess right now there's there's less uh, less going on for sure. So so yeah, so the big shock is that like yeah, people work on the weekend and um, and I kind of like it. Um, I'm not sure how much longer I would like it because I also heard that like as soon as you like have families, like for you, Lucas, I heard you had a baby recently. Congratulations! I did. Yeah, yeah. Do you still work on the weekend? You know, I, I guess like I, um, 
So I, I I don't think I have like a very strong point of view. Like like you know I feel like it's a little bit weird to tell people not to work super hard. Like I worked incredibly hard in my twenties, and um, I kind of like to imagine that hard work pays off. Um, you know I think did it. I I I I feel proud of the stuff that yeah. I did. I think like you did you, know, you did, like you did a great job. I mean I have done a lot of great things. So. Oh thank you. Um, I mean I don't know. Like I, I'm a I think fan. Like, I don't. If you're lucky enough to have a job where, um, I mean, I think there is a, in the best situation, working really hard can be like incredibly fun, like for me. So, so often, and I realize like, you know, I run, I run a company and, you know, you know, like maybe I'm, I'm coming from a particular point of view, but for me, like working, um, really hard, it can, can be like a real joy. Like when I, when I actually started my, my second company, one of the really fun things for me was that it actually made sense for me to like, you know, like pull an all nighter once in a while, which I hadn't, I hadn't done that. In really? A long Do you time. still pull all nighters? No, I have a baby. It's like, well, I pull a different kind <laughs> of all nighter. Natural, natural all nighter. Yeah, natural all nighter. It's an unproductive all nighter. Um, but uh, I also think, like, um, I think that, you know, the, I mean, the important thing is like a company is trying to do something and like, you know, figuring out how to do it is the important thing and like figuring out how to do that over the long term is so like yeah it needs to be a sustainable pace because like um you know if you if you work hard and burn out that's super counterproductive but i don't always think that burnout actually comes from like working hard i think burnout comes more from like working on things that seem pointless or like you yeah. know not seeing the success that you wanted yeah. um, i see yeah that doesn't uh, make sense yeah, yeah. So, I so I think for me, like seeing people working on the weekend, is not a bad thing. It's just like, even me, like I also feel motivated to go on the weekends just because I really like what I do and, and I have a faith in it. And I think I also want to contribute. Like if on a Saturday night, I could stay at home and watch some like, I don't know, some, uh, I don't know, watch a bachelor. I don't know, watch it, but it's just what people seem to be watching. Or I could like just go on our GitHub and check out some PRs. Um, I know that sounds like a horrible um, analogy, um, but yeah. So, so I think like yeah, I, I feel I feel motivated. So I say like, okay. So anyway, back to the question. So the first thing I noticed <laughs> is the <laughs> the different workload, um, and um, yeah, and I feel and it, and I feel okay working on the weekends because I'm so like um, mm. I can still talk to my coworkers on the weekend, uh, and I like it. Um, and it's a more very understanding because like because. Um, People, so I think everyone knows that other people, some people work on the weekend. So people also like gives them more flexibility. Like if you even on the weekday, if you feel like burnt out and like tired, and I take want to take a day or two off during the week and just buy as well. Uh, so so I think I like the understanding of like just making the schedule to work for you. Don't necessarily follow a, a a typical like five day work week and like work on the weekdays and then take weekend off. Weekend off. I think the second thing is um the, the amount of exposure. I, I have uh, to the entire stack. So mm -hmm. working in a big company, I'm most focused on very specific product, and I don't. I'm, I'm shielded uh, away from it one other aspect, as in like, um, yeah, as um, as in like QA or or like client. Um, but but at startup, I get a chance to see everything, and we are sort of building the stack from scratch. So I'm so like exposed to the decisions that we we have to make. For example, like. What uh, what CI/CD tool to use, or like how to how we should structure a repo? Like, do you want like a mono repo, or do you want like uh, like very small repos? 
So, uh, and also like decide decisions on like what tools you use because you know when you join a big company, usually you have to use the standard tools, and somebody only made a decision for you. But as a startup, you you also have have a say in in choosing the tools, which expose you like various problems as well. So I really like it. Mm. Yeah, and also of course it's like um, the size. Like at the big companies, you there are a lot of people. I think it's nice at the big company as you have access to a lot of people. But at a startup, you, know, you have a small number of college, so you can't spend randomly message somebody from another team and ask for a coffee because only you have like just people on the team. Yeah. Cool, makes sense. Um, all right, so we always, so I think we've, we're kind of going over time, and we always end with two <laughs> okay. questions. I'm really kind of curious to hear your your takes on these. So, um, yeah, the first question is that in in what is a topic in um, machine learning that you think people don't talk enough about or they don't talk about, it's an underrated topic that people should talk about more but they don't so i i think i have a list of things i, I usually like throw around uh, one, right. of usually, <laughs> one of them one of them is a graph so i, I love graphs um, i usually think this graph is so underrated and i think i had a tweet about like a few years ago about it um, but I think it has changed. Like I was at New Rips in December, and I saw so many papers on graphs. And there's a workshop on graphs. That's, that was like the most attended workshop. So, so I you're think, talking about the computer uh, science sense of of graph, right? Um, it's or do you mean graph, like literally like, like graph picture. network? Uh, so like graph network. theory. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So, so now we have like they have like several like uh, so a lot of um, graph like GNN or GCNN mm-hmm. and graph convolutional neural network. Um, so I think like, there are multiple uses of graphs in in uh, deep learning. The first is as so graph is natural representations of like many inputs, right? So we have a data from social network, for example, is a graph, or recommendation systems. Then we have like users and items, and it's a bipartite graph. So graph is a natural representation of input, and also like mm-hmm. graphs can also like output. So it's you know like any uh, so a lot of distributions can be rep- rep- represented using graph, like a pictorial graph. So graphs can be like kind of represent both input and output, and also like graphs um, can also have a lot of relationship with convolutions. So they are both local. Um, so 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 yeah. So they both focus on the local connections. Uh, so like graphs like at a point connected to like one's its neighboring points, and like convolutions when you have a like, very local uh, linear transformation. Uh, I'm having a very hand wavy explanation right now. So sure. so yeah, so I so I, I really love graph and I'm so happy to see that it's catching on. Um cool. so I think like other things that are underrated is like engineering aspect for, for machine learning. So I haven't seen much about talking about like uh integrate integrations for 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 deep learning or like um version control. But I think all of those like people are so like I'm I'm not unique, I feel like what I see other people have already seen and the company is still catching up on it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good good answer. <laughs> and all right, here's Hopefully. the second <laughs> Yeah. Well obviously I agree. Um the uh the so the second question is um in your experience I'm really curious I guess about this one actually. So in your experience like mm-hmm. taking um Oh wait take, can I just add yeah. I'm gonna add another thing. So yeah. I still like it's on underrated. I think I'm very production oriented. So I think it's like monitoring. Uh, mm-hmm. So like uh, it's just not experiment tracking for training, but like monitoring in, in the real world. Like you deploy systems and how do you monitor it? Like how do you mm-hmm. know that when you need to retrain the model? How do you know that the data distribution has shifted? 
mm-hmm. you know, so I, I haven't seen a lot of monitoring. Um, so I think it's still very underrated. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah, sorry. No, no, and maybe that's the answer. Trying to, to, trying to sound smart, you know? <laughs> I think you're successfully sounding smart. Yeah. <laughs> But the, the, the second question is, in your experience, taking um, projects from like training into production mm-hmm. deployed systems, where's the biggest bottleneck? Like, what's the hardest step in that? Um, one, one is like, clearly right now is um, when you have very big models, it's really slow to inferencing. <laughs> Inference time. Wow, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very slow. And it can be very costly. Uh, so, uh-huh. um, so, so for example, like you, if you try to take like GPT two to go mm-hmm. into productions, um, and you just like, even use spot instances, uh, isn't so like cost quite a bit for every inferencing, like for for every time you make a prediction, like you know, Jared something. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so so that's hard. Like if you just like, um, so yes, yeah, so this is why we haven't seen a lot of GPT two in production yet. Um, right. And it's it's very interesting problem. So like um, I'm not sure if I can mention the exact company, uh, but but some startup told me so they're using uh, GPT two in production, and um, once and they said like if they could reduce the inference time by half, they could be able to break even. So like um, mm, so like wow. for example, if they can uh, instead of using the normal uh, precision point if they can somehow make it works on uh, for some epi 16 like half precision point then it can reduce the uh, uh, inference time by half and therefore when when like help the company may stay afloat and i think it's a it make a really big difference like you just like break even uh or not in especially in this economy mm-hmm. yeah totally wow great answer <laughs> Interesting. Um, <laughs> my final question actually is simple. So, uh, if people want to um, like learn more about your work, or, or do you, like, do you have a Twitter account or a company that yes. you want to tell us about? I spend too much time on Twitter, and I'm ashamed. Uh, but yes, follow <laughs> me on Twitter. What's um, your Twitter? Uh, uh, it's uh, it's Chipro. It's like C H I P R O, and it's not Chipro. It's like professional. It's more like. RO means crazy in Vietnamese, so I should cheap. Oh, it. really? I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Accidental. Um, yeah. All right, we should end with that. That was great. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I also have a blog which I like blog about tech and stuff. Uh, but I, yeah, I write long form. Like each of my blog post takes me like two to three months to write. Um, yeah, so I don't write a lot. Um, so, but, but you should but check it well. out. That's great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Th- Coming from you, you means a lot. Yeah.